Welcome to the Lifebox Media Channel Radio Podcast. Today we have the esteemed pleasure of having singer, songer, recording artist, Mr. John Goodwin in today. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for coming on the show. How, how's everything going with you hunkering down and all these good things going on out there right now? Well, everything's pretty good, you know, progressing as usual. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show and, uh, Share a little bit about your career with us. What got you involved in music to begin with? Well, I was just like infected with a love for music when I was a kid. What was what? What kind of music did you listen to then? Well, actually, um, I'm. It was back in Los Angeles in the 1950s, and uh, I think my mother used to take me and my brother to see all the Broadway shows when they left Broadway and they arrived in LA with the original cast so just as a kid I was lucky enough to see like Yule Brenner and the King and I and Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews and My Fair Lady and things like that Robert Preston Barbara Cook and the Music Man Mary Martin and the Sound of Music it was just kind of thrilling and just stirred my soul so I guess that brought me really closer to music in general. That's some fantastic shows. I've been fortunate enough to see a bunch of those shows that you just named uh, in the 80s and some wonderful, wonderful music. So I can definitely see why you got hooked there um, without a doubt. And, and it just reaches out and it kind of grabs you. And and uh, there's nothing like going to see something live like a Broadway show. Absolutely. Especially like with the original cast. Like I remember Camelot with Richard Burton and Julie Andrews and Robert Goulet. It was just uh, wonderful music. You know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe. Anyway, that, I mean, that really kind of drew me into it heavily. And, uh, yeah. You brought up a name I haven't heard in a long time, Robert Goulet. Um, unbelievable singer. Absolutely. Uh, totally amazing. Um, he was he, he was in the original cast of Camelot, and uh, actually was a friend of my father's, and we used to go see him in Vegas sometimes. Just an amazing singer, incredible guy. Is is that what kind of because uh, because your music kind of goes all over the place? I mean, I, I was looking up things online, uh, seeing you all different forms and fashions of music. Um, I, I don't know if you have. Do you have a particular favorite? Because you really are pretty good at a lot of them. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You know, I think I'm, I just was naturally drawn to all kinds of music, and especially like being a teenager in California in the 60s, you know, I mean, there was, you know, there was, you know, everything like was happening on the radio, so there were very few forms of music that I didn't like, you know, by way of certain, you know, singers and songwriters, you know. Is there anybody in particular in the music world then at that time period that influenced you to how you wanted to play, or is that, or, you, or is it because you have such a varied way of music? Well, yeah, there were a lot of people who influenced me, and I got started kind of late. I was like in my first year of college before I started playing guitar and writing songs. Uh, there were so many influential people. You know, obviously, the Beatles and Dylan when they first came out. I think there are a lot of singer-songwriters, you know, who would say that their whole desire to make music started when they heard those guys, you know? 
know? Right. Um, one thing that's maybe kind of interesting, I guess, is that, you know, unbeknownst to me, I was like a witness to what's now considered to be a really historical period of music because I lived near the Troubadour. And like from 1968 until about 1973, I was at the Troubadour like 159th year. Wow. Just sitting there listening. Yes. Just sitting there because, <clears throat> you know, listening to all those people do their shows because they weren't popular enough to work in bigger clubs. And most of them could barely, you know, halfway fill the Troubadour. So I'd go down like, I hope I'm not going on and on too much about no, this. No, wonderful. Like, Please continue. Well, the way the Troubadour ran was like on Sunday night it was closed. And on Monday night they had what they called the hoot night when singers could sign up and get up on stage with the guitar and play, you know, their, a few songs and followed by the next person. And from Tuesday to Saturday they had a headliner who played two shows a night with an opening act. So... For instance, if Linda Ronstadt was there, I'd go down on Tuesday, see two shows, come back the next night, see two shows, and I'd, I mean, five days a week, and the next week I'd come in and see James Taylor like 10 times when he could only draw 45 people, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then it was like Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown and Warren Zevon and J.D. Souther and the Birds and like my buddy Bobby Darren. Like, all these people played the troubadour, and, and I, it was just a, a blast. They knew me at the door, so they just let me in. See Randy Newman play an entire album, just piano, vocal. and So anyway, that was pretty steep. I mean, Cat uh, Stevens, Jim Croce, that, that influenced me, I'm sure, but I didn't know it was historical. All I knew was that I was having a great time listening to these people. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. You just brought up Randy Newman, and... Huey Lewis once told me back in about 1984 or 5, he said, this, you better keep watching this guy because he hasn't even started to what he's going to do. And I looked at him, I said, the I Love L.A. guy? And he's like, yeah. And, and man, I was like, okay, man, I'll, I'll listen to you because I love Huey. And, boy, he wasn't kidding. He's got Oscars. He's got Grammys. He's got everything. So you were really yeah. watching him way back. And when he was really getting... I mean, yeah, when, like his first second album, like... You know, he played that Sail Away album, like, uh, you know, Mama Told Me Not To Come, and Last Night I Had a Dream, and all those songs. Just a piano and a, and a voice in the troubadour with a, you know, a room that had, you know, like three quarters filled with people, because those, in those days, those people, not, not everyone was aware of them, you know, now they can sell out, you know, everything right. <laughs> 5,000, 20,000 seaters, but back then, like, you know, I was one of the few who just went there because I loved it. And and, but, and, and and it shows, obviously, but you also recognize you see some of these talents that, you know, from the ground up, I think that's really remarkable because they want to have some great memories and, and, and obviously you're sharing with someone on the show and we appreciate it. But I think it's really neat saying, you know, you're really awesome saying you saw James Taylor with, you know, 40 people in a crowd or Linda Ronstadt. I saw Linda Ronstadt playing clubs with the Stone Ponies outside of Philly, and it was crazy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's was that during that time period? Well, this was, I think this was after the Stone Ponies. Ah. Um, when when she left them, and she, she I think she got, a, she got a record deal maybe on Reprise or 
something like that. It was her solo albums. I think I mainly saw her between her you know, first solo album and her fourth or fifth solo albums. It's called Hasten Down the Wind, I think. And at that point, she got so po- she started getting so popular that she didn't play the troubadour anymore. She played bigger venues, which is, you know, understandable. But, boy, it was such a thrill to listen to that lady and her band, you know, play for an hour and then take a break and listen to them play again. I mean, I never got tired of it. It was just always beautiful. Oh, absolutely. That's just, see, that that's the stuff I love to hear. I love to hear um those time periods like that because the one there'll be nothing like it again there'll never be anything like it again i mean you can see well, people I, coming up i hope there will i i well i'm, I'm saying is i and maybe 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 you're right but i i mean you're just talking about great eras of music where you're, you're seeing people in these smaller clubs and seeing them come up that now that they're legendary and just unbelievable and 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 that's that's just really it's really great and i love you sharing stories like that um oh, thank you thank you no that that's phenomenal um and so you you started late with a guitar it's funny yeah me too i started about three years ago i'm still working on it <laughs> <laughs> cool day, man you got a long way to go but enjoy it you know <laughs> one day when i grow up i'll be able to play the guitar half as good as you <laughs> hey, one day when i grow up i'll uh, you know <laughs> oh, no, whatever. <laughs> right. Um, but so, did, did you take to the guitar easily? Was it something that came to you really, relatively fast? Yeah, yeah. I started playing it. I just, my a roommate in college played it, and I just got one and started playing it. And it was fairly easy, although, you know, to learn the, first of all, when you play the guitar, you got to learn three or four chords and, and be able to move them around because that's what happens in most songs. And that was a little like finger yoga, which you have to learn. But once I started moving them around, like the first song just kind of popped out. The second one popped out. So it was pretty spontaneous. Um, yeah. Do you remember what, what uh, song you felt really comfortable with? The first song you thought you were really getting good at that you could really do well? Well, the first song I wrote, I thought it was really, really good. But looking back on it, I now realize that I was a little naive and it wasn't quite as great or heavy as I thought it was. But it, it, it was a full song. The melody was complete. The lyrics were complete. It sounded like a song. And it was a good sign. You know, I it took me a long time personally to evolve as a songwriter to the point at which I could conceivably be interesting in front of audiences. In fact, I just really started playing in public maybe four or five years ago because I just kind of hid away in those songs. I've just been a song gypsy all my life, you know, the back roads and the backwoods and the back streets and just like, you know, following inspiration and ignoring finances. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what was what was the first song you played that was really good that you felt when you actually picked up the guitar and you said, "Oh, I, I finally got this for a good song." That you know, when you when you played a song of if you did a cover, what was the first cover you did that you thought you sounded really good at? Well, the thing is, I never really played a lot of other people's songs. Oh, I mainly okay. I played the songs that I wrote. And the first song that I wrote, it's a little embarrassing, was a song called Camille. And I was in my freshman year of college in California. And that summer I came, I went back to L.A. where I lived. And uh, 
I got the chance to play that song for Bobby Darren in his office on Sunset Strip. He had a publishing company. And he freaked out and just thought I was the greatest raw talent he'd ever heard and started paying me to write songs for his company, which he sold about four months later. He got this offer for the company that he couldn't refuse. So I never did sign the publishing deal, but he and I remained very close friends uh, until he died in 73. That That's just, you just had me right there. It, it, it's sitting down with Bobby Darren. That's just totally cool. That is, I mean, he was a very close cool. friend of mine, and I'm proud to say it. He was one of the most talented men I've ever known, and I think a lot of people don't know who he is now. But if they if they went in and discovered videos he did uh, back then, and uh, he died in '73, and they discover if they go into some of his catalog and stuff, I mean, there's so much power and there's so much healing power in his music, and. Uh, you know, uh, we had many adventures together. <laughs> <laughs> my, I'll tell you what, my children and my grandchildren know who Bobby Darren is, and he's on most of my most of my children's playlists. So that'll tell you, and they go I from twenty eight to thirty nine, and so that's that's I'll tell yeah. you that that's cool. So I can't wait till uh, my kids turn on that. I was I've met a lot of people, but uh, unfortunately, he wasn't one of them. So I mean, that's really cool. I love hearing this. Um, yeah. How, how was it working that it would, when you just would like, hand him some music and he'd just go over it and boom, you're on your way to, well, to the next one? Or Well, I, I would just be, you know, I, I was out there on my own just writing songs and, you know, and then I'd go in and, you know, play them for him. And he booked a couple sessions for me, just guitar vocal sessions of this uh, recording studio down on, uh, I think it was Santa Monica Boulevard by La Brea. And I go in and like just, you know, record guitar vocals and stuff like that. And when the publishing deal ended, I just, you know, I just show up, just play them songs in his living room or whatever. <laughs> Not many people um, can say that they sat in Bobby Darren's living room and played him a tune. That's cool. Oh, my God. I mean, he was so cool and just the greatest entertainer. I don't know if you've ever seen film of him. Much. A lot. But, yes, sir. Yeah. It's wonderful, right? Oh, fantastic! Fantastic! Absolutely. Um, watch watching his old stuff. Um, I mean, I, I have I used to have a seventy five Seabrook Entertainer jukebox, and and Splish Splash, and and two or three other songs were on there, and that's why my kids knew him. So, uh-huh. and uh, yeah. so that's why my kids knew him. But I mean, uh, they'd be like, you know, and my, my oldest son I know right now in his car still has Splish Splash on his uh, on his playlist. So Yeah, that was like his first hit, but he went on to write just the miraculous songs, that all, all of which became hits. Right. Um, I wasn't just I don't want to but... dwell on him too much, but he was a genius. He, his IQ was around 150. He was a Mensa. Nice. Now you've also... And I, I, honestly, I honestly think that if the, the young generation, I mean, people between like, you know, 12 and 25 heard his, a lot of his music and saw him on film, especially, you know, video that he, he did, like, in 71, 72, 73, that he would be as popular today as he was back then, even if he's not around. You know? He was a sharp dresser, and uh, he carried himself, he was very cool, and he was talented. He was very cool. And he had great stage presence. Yeah, I think... Uh, 
Yeah, I read in some book that during the 1960s, he was the biggest selling act on the Vegas Strip for like seven out of ten years. He was selling more tickets than Sinatra and, and all of those guys because he was just the most charismatic guy on stage. I mean, like, everybody loved him. They had to buy, get reservations a year in advance to see him perform at the Copa or the Flamingo, places like that. Like, uh, anyway, he was, it was just a blessing, uh, to have seen that and been close to that. And he definitely inspired me, probably more than anyone else on the planet. Like, uh, that is, that's, that's an amazing, uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a big person to uh, to inspire you for sure. And I agree. I think if people, some people did look, young kids did look at him because a lot of people would love the dress, they'd love the act, they'd love the presence, and he was cool and he was talented. So I agree with that. Now you know, going kind of going past that part is, and you you still write to this day, right? Yeah, I've uh, I've always written. I mean, when I'm inspired, I write, and I, I co-write a lot in Nashville. I've co-written a bunch of songs here. What is, so, um, uh, are you one of those songwriters that, that, uh, you sit down and boom, it just comes out or do you break it up into times or it depends on your mood? I ask this often cause I always like to hear the answer. Sure. Um, well, uh, for one thing, I've never had a publishing deal in Nashville, which is kind of bizarre, but that being said, I've also been one of the hardworking songwriters in Nashville because I was inspired. It's not because I was ambitious. So. You know, I'd make a, people would hear about me and they'd want to meet me, and I'd run into them social people socially, and they wanted to write with me and stuff like that. My reputation as a writer grew, and you know, songwriting, you know, co-writing takes place in many different forms. You know, when you're writing alone, you can have an idea at two in the morning or eleven, you know, you know, or twelve p.m. or whenever, and you can just write a song. You know, but when you're co-writing with people like you meet up with them at a, an appointed time usually, and you may you may have something to bring, like a lyric or a melody or a chorus or nothing. And the other person may have something to bring too. And whatever you arrive with is usually what you start with. It doesn't mean it's what you finish with. But um, somehow or other songs, you know, get written, and. Um, that's kind of, does that kind of answer your question? I hope it does. No, no, it, it, it does. Well, I mean, because it's not, you know, I know some people, they sit down and say, okay, I'm writing today. And sometimes it works for them and sometimes it doesn't. And some people, it's over time. So I just I just wondered, I always like to find out kind of what makes you tick on that part. But you, you, you did answer the question. I appreciate that. And you've sung with yeah, a really lot am. of great talent. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, Jessica Andrews, Michael McDonald, Jeff Bridges. I love your bit with Jeff Bridges, by the way. Oh, thank you, man. He's a treasure, you know. He is a treasure of a human being. I just, you know, I've known him since I was like nine years old or something. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very, I actually have been very, very lucky to have, you know, written with so many talented people. And, and some of them are very famous and a lot of them aren't. But everybody had some, everybody who I worked with had something beautiful to bring to the to the song and I'm just grateful for every single one of them uh, you, you you've and that you've had you've had some uh, songs that have been put into several motion pictures too I've had some yeah 
I have had some. And I'm really like, once again, I'm like very grateful for that happening because there are so many people trying to have that happen. And it's very hard. Uh, you know, you've got thousands of people trying to get on all these television shows and in the movies. And, you know, uh, not having had a publisher, I never had anybody to really represent me to the TV or movies. But, you know, some stuff got through and it was just wonderful. Like I actually, you know, I, I, don't, I hope this doesn't sound like boasting or anything, but like I did get a Grammy for being on the soundtrack of Jeff's movie called Crazy Heart. I didn't know you got a Grammy for that. That's the one thing I did not see on there, but that is amazing. And congratulations. That is fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I, I co-wrote the opening title song in that movie and also the first song on the soundtrack. I co-wrote it with T-Bone Burnett and a brilliant guy named Stephen Bruton. And I didn't even know it had gotten the Grammy until three years later. I was reading something that said, Grammy winning award album, blah, blah, blah. I thought, oh my God, I didn't even know. Like, you know, so uh, thanks talk for, about. Thanks for calling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, you know, like, you know, uh, it's all right, man. It's part of life is, you know, kind of a comedy sometimes, you know. But. Right, you know, I'm fun in it. That's why I said to you, you find out three years later, hey, I got a, well, I got a Grammy. That's awesome, you know. Thanks for letting me know in a newspaper. <laughs> Yeah, so I call. I, I emailed the Grammy Association or NARIS or whatever it is, and I and I mentioned that, and they sent me. They didn't send me the medal Grammy, but you know there were twenty five songwriters on the soundtrack. But they sent me a beautiful certificate that holds my wall up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know that. You know, I'll tell you what. I I take that over not having one. So I think that's really cool. Um, you know. Yeah, it's very cool. That that, that is. It is a a real. Small club. That's a real small club. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, you know, there are so many people, so many songwriters who have written songs, you know, great songs that I've heard in Nashville, you know, friends and people I've written with, songs that have never been recorded, that have never been in a movie, that have never won a Grammy. I mean, songs, a lot of songs that are really better than most of the stuff they put on the radio. So the fact that to, to be rewarded and awarded for stuff, you know, it's very pleasing, you know, but behind that all, I know that there's a lot of amazing music that maybe one day people will hear or not, you know, and it's it's there. I, you know, I've been lucky enough to hear some of it from, you know, people I work with, you know. What would you, if, if I went to your, uh, Top five songs right now you're listening to. Who would we be listening to right now? If, if, if I went in and said, okay, man, the top five songs you're listening to currently. Well, that would be rough. <laughs> <laughs> that would be rough. I mean, occasionally, you know, during the 70s, after the whole singer-songwriter thing ended, you know, the 60s music and followed by the troubadour and the singer-songwriter movement, you know, it's, when disco hit, like, singer-songwriters were kind of no longer welcome at the record companies, and they had a they had a genre they had to feed called disco. And whereas you only had one guy who could write a Dylan song, that being Bob Dylan, you had 500 writers who could write a disco song. So music 
I, I do, and, and I'm, and I'm, a, I'm a huge. I love all music, and I'm a huge disco fan. But I mean, I, I understand that disconnect that happened there, and there was a time period that it was, um, it was not cool to kind of be a, a, a singer songwriter at, at that time. And I think that you know, it, it kind of came back around as disco died. It started coming back in again. But I, I think it was really rough sometimes, and people don't get the recognition they really deserved um, during time period because it's bigger than one thing of music, and I think sometimes people forget about that. Right. <clears throat> well, you know, the thing is, like, in the, after the mid-'70s, you know, the music on the radio became less and less personal. Yeah. And you had disco, and you had glam, and you had metal, and then you had punk, and then you had this, and then you had that. But they were all kind of like fads that were created at boardrooms and put on the radio, and then the public was given the impression that these were grassroots movements that came out of popular demand and stuff like that, whereas they literally were genres created which the record industry could fill and satisfy by having enough people who were willing to write that kind of style of music. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I do. <coughs> I do. And um, what kind of uh, so so if if you do you listen to much do you listen to anything right now or or is everything that I would if I like I said if I went and I checked out your what you're listening to if you were going to go sit down and listen to some songs what would what would we be listening to right now if we were having a drink right now and we sat down what what would be what would be turned on? Well, can I answer that? question slightly indirectly, but I'll really get to the answer for you. Absolutely, of course. Well, I I mean, this is an imaginary hypothetical picture, time picture, excuse me, pardon me, of like 1972, okay? I'm living in LA. I'm 24 years old. I look in the newspaper on a Friday night to see who I wanted to go see at a club, right? And, And there were like you know, a number of clubs in, in L.A. at that time. So, like, I'm looking at the paper, well, I could go see Duke Ellington play at a little jazz club in the Valley. Wow. Or I could go see, you know, the Birds play at the Whiskey. Or I could go see Linda Ronset at the Troubadour. Or I could go see Muddy Waters at this little blues club called the Ash Grove. You know, or maybe, like, Dylan was at the Santa Monica Civic. And on any given night, there were like five or, you know, especially on the weekends, there were five or six people who would just, you should go see them, they'd blow your mind, you know? Um, it's not, for me, it's not quite like that right now. Although, you know, there's some songs that come out that I do like, but it's, you know, it's really strange. Like, I'll share something with you. I don't know how cool it is, but, in 1968 or so, I was at Bobby Darren's house after, I think it was after a party, we were sitting there alone. He was 12 years older than me, and I was kind of a green songwriter, but with a lot of potential, you know? And he told me that, and he loved the 60s music, he loved the Beatles, he loved Dylan, he loved Leonard Cohen, he loved all those great individualistic singer-songwriters, and he told me, that a new kind of guy was going to come into the music business and these new guys were going to take the entire music business over and they didn't care about art 
and they didn't care about any kind of messages in the songs or any statements. He said, all they care about is selling plastic, and they don't care what's printed on the plastic. And by 1975, that had kind of kicked in, like we weren't getting personal messages in the new artists who were being signed. So it just became more and more kind of generic. Right. And around that time, I started listening to country music. And I found that between 74 and like 82, there was a lot of great country music being written and recorded in Nashville. It was very personal. It was very unique. The singers were really amazing. And, and a lot of the songs were just so honest. And it took over for, it, it took over for me where rock and roll and R&B started falling off. So I spent seven years just listening to that country radio station, buying all those singles and albums, you know, early Tanya Tucker, early Dolly Parton, Charlie Pride, George Jones, Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn. I, I literally accidentally fell into listening to all that era in real time, hit by hit on the country radio station in the small town of California where I was living. So kind of interesting, you know? Uh, well, absolutely. And, and geez, I mean, you know, early Tanya Tucker, uh, Charlie Pride, I mean, Charlie, I'm probably Charlie Rich in there too, which I love. Um, Buck Owens, you Buck know. Owens, that's a great time period. And, and early Dolly is incredible. I mean, she's always incredible. Yeah, I mean, early it, Dolly's incredible. Surely. I mean, back in those days, we, we didn't, we couldn't just go to, you know, to iTunes or wherever and get Dolly Parton's greatest hits. Right. One song came out, you know, Jolene came out, and then Code of Many Colors three or four months later. So we heard all the hits, but it was like in real time. And it was kind of wild, man. So country music kind of saved my mind when rock and roll started to fade a little bit in terms of its personal quality, you know. Right. So, that, so that's what you would lean on today? You'd sit there and you'd be more so leaning on country music if we were listening to... Well, Funny thing is, man, I hope I'm not being totally indiscreet here. No, no, no. You're, you're, but that's what you, it's but just, just as the movie industry kind of co-opted the record business in the in the early '70s when it did Urban Cowboy, and when it did like Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta, right? That was a switch from personal singer-songwriter music to disco music. That's when all the publishers and record companies, I'll go to a publisher in LA with some songs and play a couple songs and they, they say like, people don't want to listen to songs anymore. People want to dance, you know? So after I listened to the great countries, you know, what's called the classic country of the 70s, you know, once again, John Travolta came out and did a movie called Saturday Night, called, called Urban Cowboy. Yes. In which because they knew that they were marketing it to a northern audience, they put a lot of pop in the country music, and it wasn't that honest or sincere or personal anymore. It was more like it was more like a game, you know. Well, they, and they, and they, that they, album, that album made so many so much money for people in Nashville that they decided, hey, let's keep putting the pop in the country, and we can sell more of it than we could if we just wrote pure, honest southern country truth, you know. Right, because you could go so to Wall Street and guys were walking around with cowboy boots on and, and, and having a Stetson on. 
Yeah, so I, I, at that time, as country music got a little more like jive, I sort of lost interest in it and stopped listening to it. Um, yeah, man, it was really wild. And and after that, it was just find great music wherever you, wherever you can find it or wherever it comes to you. And sometimes it was here and sometimes it was there, you know. Um, but as Bobby Darren told me, it wasn't going to be as artistic or personal as it was during the 60s. Right. I, I definitely... I definitely uh that's it is it's funny because I'm I'm a huge Elvis fan and that's the only thing he didn't do was write and I sit there and I said that's the one thing that you know the Beatles and 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 Dylan and all those guys did do was write and and that's what it became I learned a lot more about music lo- looking into the songwriters aspect of things even today sometimes I'll get you a couple of lines and I'll listen to a song so oh man I just realized what that line was after listening to it for 30 years and it changes the meaning of the song. It changes the whole aspect of the song. And I think that, you know, songwriting is, I don't think it's a lost art because there's a lot of great songwriters out there. I just think a lot of them need to be showcased. And obviously, you know, that brings me to the point of asking you, what do you have, what, do you, what are you working on right now, my friend? Well, actually, you know, I, I want to go back to what I'm listening to now. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And also, and also, I just, I mean, like I said, I hope I'm not being totally indiscreet here and saying things that, you know, aren't cool to say socially, but I, I things that a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people understand this behind closed doors in the music business, you know, but not only, you know, it's like when Dylan and the Beatles were you know, doing their thing between 63 and 1969 or 70, they literally led everything else that was happening. And they inspired all these other writers to just be pulse out great. You know, like when you read interviews with Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and Paul Simon, all these guys saying, those guys like enabled me and they emboldened me to be the absolute best songwriter I could with no fear. And we had we we literally had leaders who were just writing the absolute best, and everybody was trying to be that good. And I think that you know today, I don't think we really have leaders who are taking enough chances, you know, to inspire like an entire new movement of singer songwriters. But if we did, we had a band as great as the Beatles. Now, a lot of people would be better than they think they are when it comes to writing and playing their song. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree with that, but I feel that, you know, that's a, a lot of times it's a once in a lifetime, and the Beatles are, uh, you know, every one of them, as talented as they are and, and were, it, it's totally different. They're just, the, the mold was broken with them. I mean, you know, I, will it happen again? Of course. I'm sure, you know, lightning a strike again like that, but it's, and it will inspire a whole group, but, I think that a lot of people think they're great songwriters, and some of them are great songwriters, but I, I do feel it's in between and down the way, not as many as people think there is. Well, you know, I guess I, my feeling is that everybody, when they write a song, thinks it's the greatest song that was ever written, or why write it, you know? Right. To tell you the truth, man, like, and, and in light of everything I just said, I'm, I'm not pessimistic about the whole thing, because I believe there are, are as many great singer-songwriters on the planet today as there were in the 1960s up until 1975. 
but I don't think they're being attracted to or recognized by, you know, the people who, you know, who run whatever's left of the music business. It's really sad, you know. A lot of people are down on the music business. I'm not down on the music business. I mean, when I was a teenager and in my 20s and 30s, the music business gave me the best songs I'd ever heard in my entire life. Right. You know, it was a delivery system. You know, all those country singers and all those rock singers and people in the 60s, whether it was Hendrix or, or Otis Redding or any of those guys, I mean, the music business presented that to us. Uh, but I think, you know, as Darren tried to give me a heads up on the priorities changed and they tried to make it a little more a little more generic it was a sort of a cynical thing about not trusting the public would get stuff if it was honest and real and stuff and the public would get it but so they sold to a certain number, certain certain people and other people just lost interest in it you know right um I mean, I'm thinking about songs that I've listened to today that I really like. Because, you know, it isn't, it isn't cynicism on my part not to love everything and go crazy about everything. It's actually a realization that there's a certain cynicism that will not let a lot of balls-out, truth-telling songs come out. Because, after all, if if that happened, people might want that instead of the other thing, and everybody would have to work harder to go out and find that and provide that to the public. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I and I do see that you know people do sh- people are going to shine through. I mean, and I think this is one of these best times that uh, even right now people are using it as a cliche, but I think right now during these times that where everybody's uh, you know being careful and rethinking things and whatever, or they at least should be to an extent that. I think a lot of things are going to come out of this that are going to, they're going to be positive, and, and I think music might even get you know a couple good strikes on that it is, and maybe open up some doors to some people who have been working real hard to get in the door. Like I said, music business has changed, and it's a it's there's not I call it and I joke and I say there's not a lot of big Justin Bieber deals out there, meaning no one's throwing the huge money out at somebody right now to come in the door, but you know I think that it might maybe change things, maybe to kind of like be a reset and a restart. Yeah, true. And also, it may have to start in small clubs, like all those people I saw at the Troubadour. You know, uh, you know, I don't know where it's going to start. Um, I mean, the, I'm trying to think of some songs that I've liked recently. Um, I did like, uh, there's a song by a guy named Lee Bryce called Rumor, or Rumors, which I, I really dug. And there was a single by Lee and Carly Pierce, and, um, you know, a song, a, a duet um, with um, Keith Urban and Carrie Underwood, and I saw them perform it on TV on the CMA shows, and I really dug it, called The Fighter. Yes, I did see that. No. Yeah, and um, there's some other ones. I mean, there's there are a lot of country songs I heard on records here in the last 20 years that were never singles. But they were really cool. Like there's a song by George Strait called "Look Who's Back from Town." <laughs> right, right. And um, you know the, this. You know, God, Gary Burr is a great Nashville songwriter, and 
Yeah, he wrote a song called uh, She Can't Be Really Gone, the Tim McGraw cut, even though it was 12 or something years ago. So, um, you know, I'm still a fan of stuff, but it has to be really unique and it, you know, just has to hit me. I don't, you know, I just, just can't buy the whole set and then, you know, I have to find something within the set, you know, uh, some other stuff. I really like the song called The Bones by Marin Morris, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, no, I actually saw, I actually, actually saw that song, uh, this past, uh, last year. Live. Yeah, I, I I wasn't live is the way I saw it too, and I I, I listen I, I listen to the single and it's a little too clean compared to the live thing. I really I really dug the live thing, you know. And um, there's a there was some you know country some concert on TV or there wasn't really a concert. But it was these country artists at their home, you know, singing songs on their porch and in their studio and stuff, right? I really dug the song that Miranda Lambert sang, just guitar vocal, you know. And I loved her performance a few years ago on the CMAs of a song called Tin Man, just guitar and voice, you know. So, um, you know, sometimes it's really good, you know. I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm not down on the genre, but like, you know, when I was in my mid-20s to early 30s, like, you know, there were, just some freaking amazing songs being written here, like Golden Ring, and, you know, uh, some really amazing songs, like uh, You Stop Loving Her Today. Do you know Do you know those songs? Absolutely. And, you know, He Stopped Loving Her Today is, you know, it, I'm going to tell you something really funny, and I'm throwing myself out there. I listened to that song for a long time, and only in the last 10 or 15 years did I get the whole song listening to it, and I got the whole meaning feel really stupid mm-hmm. about it, but yeah. it just, one day it just hit me. You know, I love the song. I knew all the words, but, you know, it, yeah. just, it just hit me one day, and I'm like, oh, wow, damn, you idiot. You've been listening to this song for 30 years, and you just realized the entire meaning of the song. Well, hey, man, I don't feel bad about it, because I write songs, and 20 years later, I realized what I wrote. I didn't know, <laughs> you know? But the guy who wrote, he stopped loving her today, one of the guys, Bobby Braddock, is a miraculous songwriter who's you know, he's written some of my favorite songs here, like there's one called Would I Love Him Down in Shreveport. Do you know that song? I, I, I know that I know the title, but I don't know exactly how it goes. I, I, I know of it. Well, like George Jones recorded it, and it was written, I think it came out during the 70s when, you know, the, the Vietnam War was happening, and the, it was kind of a situation in, in our country where the rednecks hated the hippies and the you know, they thought they were long-haired, free-love, tree-hugging commies and shit like that. And they didn't like the fact that they had long hair, too. So Bobby Raddick wrote this brilliant hymn, and it starts out, it says, I think, I hope I quote it right, it says, like, if they saw him riding in, long hair blowing in the wind, would they love him down in Shreveport today? If they heard he was a Jew and a Palestinian, too, would they love him down in Nashville today? You know, it was a cry for tolerance. Like, Jesus had long hair. Like, what are you people doing, you know? Right. A brilliant song. You should hear the George Jones version of that, man. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to pull that up. I'll, have to, I'll definitely have to pull that up. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that. What kind of pro... Are you working on any particular projects right now? 
Well, ever since the uh, quarantine thing, I've been doing some writing long distance, actually, and uh, writing with a blues artist out of Tulsa. <laughs> nice. And um, writing with a buddy of mine in Massachusetts, a uh, great guy named Johnny Irian, and we've been we've been jamming and writing songs. And um, let's think, what else? There's some other stuff going on. Uh, yeah. So I'm I'm staying busy and really just loving like the songs that I'm writing with those people. I know there's some there's a great pop writer in LA who I'm working on a song with and uh you know, um she's very successful and hopefully the song we're writing will be recorded one day and and I just wrote one on FaceTime with a friend of mine in LA. It's a very well known actor. I won't say who it is, but it's not Jeff. <laughs> and you know, this is all I mean, I, I so enjoy writing songs with other people. I'm like a little a little giggling teenage girl. I laugh and I you know, I just like smile, I'm so happy, you know. It's like it's really wild. It's almost like uh, unrealistic, you know. I mean, well, you, you feel it though, and that—that's the part I think. That a lot of times, is you missing something on the radio today? Is that you feel it? You know, I mean, and and that's what I, I like. That if, if a song, if I hear a song and it grabs my attention, and it's not just a great beat, but you can dig it too, and you can feel it. That that that's that's different today. But I mean, I hope you come back on the Lifebox Media Channel Radio Podcast when you have something coming out. Or, or or just to kind of keep, catch up with us and what you're doing and, and share some more of these amazing stories because we def, definitely oh, sure. love to have you back on. And uh, is there anywhere people can buy your music or check out your social media? Well, to say the truth, I, I got off Facebook <laughs> about three or four <laughs> years ago. I took all my... Oh, by the way, where, where are you... Uh, coming from right now are you in nashville or somewhere else well i'm actually i actually go between nashville and orange county california but with the whole oh, thing great. going on right now um i actually live in lake forest part-time and but i have an office on office of pelvita <laughs> oh that's great man that's my old hometown man and but i'm actually right now uh outside of nashville and hermitage Man, well, let's hook up for a cup of coffee next week when they open up all the restaurants. <laughs> we're we're going to... No, actually, you know, I, I took all my... I had, I've done some solo albums, and I had them online for a while for sale, but I took them all down because, you know, I, I just realized that every, you know, it's like everything I thought was great wasn't that great. You know, a certain percentage of it was really worth sharing. And the rest I recorded because I was just, you know, emotionally seduced by my by my own thing, which everybody gets. You know, the objectivity to do editing is very hard to come by. You know, but but isn't and it maybe I just realized, isn't it? Excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Isn't it maybe though that maybe you're that it's subjective and maybe you're a little biased at times against maybe some of your own stuff? Oh, totally. But like I said a little bit earlier, like I believe that every songwriter, whether they're professional or whatever, amateur, whatever you want to call them, they, they, everybody, when they're writing a song, thinks it's the best song that's ever been written. It's just the nature of the thing. No, I'm talking you know? about the opposite. I'm talking about maybe that you're a little overcritical to your, on, your, on your own music. Maybe so, but we're all kind of seduced by our, 
you know, the music will create to a certain degree. Like, yeah, but somebody has to be critical. I mean, somebody, you know, when the, when Dylan was cutting a capital, you know, I'm sure he had a voice in it, but somebody had to say, well, these are the songs that we think should be on the album, and these other 47, which came out 50 years later, shouldn't. You know, I mean, editing, it's like when you're writing, you do a bunch of editing. I mean, you yeah. can flow spontaneously and and <clears throat> write everything you, you think of, and then if you're lucky, you can, especially if you're writing with other people, you can look at certain stuff and say, hmm, it wasn't, it wasn't quite as cool as we thought it was. Maybe we should change that. And usually your co-writers agree with you. So when you're writing, you edit. And when you record, I mean, I, a lot of people like myself would go in and cut 50 songs and find the best 17 and develop those in the studio and then realize that there are only 12 that you think are really worth sharing. So you're, eventually, you're editing a lot to try to get it down to the most essential songs and what's really the coolest and not the ones that your mind told you you were cool because you fell in love with them when you wrote them. So the whole process, whether it's, it's writing or rewriting or recording, there's a lot of editing that has to happen. And, you know, back in the 60s, there were a lot of great guys at the labels who pretty much could do editing for the singer-songwriters and get it down to the coolest, most, most essential stuff and not let people be shot down by that, which they were, you know, subjectively seduced by because they, you know, loved everything they did. Does that make sense? Oh, no, I definitely understand what you're saying there. We're almost out of time, my friend. I would, I would love. Do you have any social media up? Absolutely none. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a record I, company's I, nightmare today. <laughs> you know, I, I might go back on. I might do open up my Facebook account and Instagram again, but I just, I just, I wasn't good at it. You know, I wasn't good at it because I share a lot of memories and stories and songs, and I'm a painter and I share a lot of painting. But every now and then, I had to. I became this journalist who was talking about, like, you know, hard times in the music business and stuff like that. And I didn't like, I mean, a lot of people loved it and said, God, man, you're saying everything we can't say. Thank you for being so brave. And, and other people didn't like it or get it and say, ah, you're far too critical. And I just wasn't good at it, man. So I figured, like, hey, like, you know, get off of Facebook and Instagram and just get back to the essentials of what you do. Well, I'll tell you, well, you know, as, as I'm saying is, you know, maybe you just use it just to promote something that's good out there or maybe use it as a soundboard to some of the people that enjoy your music. Is there anywhere we, we can buy your music today? God, man, I, I don't even know if my, uh, you know, I have a, a website that it's really primitive and I don't know if, if you're going to actually get on there and buy any my album, I mean, tell you the truth, you know, I've done about seven or eight albums, and I thought everything I recorded on each album was absolutely great. And then two or three years after the fact, I listened to them and thought, you know what, three or four of them was, were worth sharing, and the rest I should have taken in the backyard and buried, you know. So for for lack of having, like, any public exposure, you know, like 
more promotion for my work now. I think what I did is went back into the process and try to refine myself to the point at which I could discover what was really, really valuable and what was superficially valuable. Because, you know, I think, I know you have to go here in a second or two, but I really think that we should try as hard as we can to give the best of the best of the best that we have and not get seduced by all of our other songs, which we, you know, loved and wrote, and try and do what, you know, that refined, you know, editing thing to the point at which, you know, we're giving only the jewels and not dirt. And that's what I've been into for the last five years is trying to create a profile that I think is of real value and none of it's like unnecessary. Well, man, and, and, and I, I can appreciate that. And I, I don't, unfortunately, we are running out of time, but I would love, maybe we can have part two of this in May. Come back if you'll be if you if you take the time and come back and we'll have part two of this in May. If you come back on the show, would you would you come back on? Well, I surely will. I think I've told you everything I know. <laughs> I, there's so many things I would love to discuss about your music and I uh, and, well, and tell you. reading other things and artists you performed with and everything else. It, there's some wonderful stories, and I know that it would be wonderful. My listeners would love to hear some of these stories again. We're just running out of time for this week's show. Cool. Can I just say one more thing on that? Yes, sir. You know, if I do come back for another segment, I would like to just spend it just telling whoever your listeners are, you know, just how much I love other human beings, whether they're great writers or or they're struggling to do something that they think is really valid. Like, I have a tremendous love of people, um, of everyone who gets up there and tries to write something to share with somebody else. Um, I, re- I just, that is something I'd be interested in doing. I, I don't much want to talk about myself or my experiences much anymore because, you know, they are what they are. But I do want to express this tremendous goodwill and, and compassion. I really am beyond any criticism or complaints I have about the music business of the world in general, like I think love's the only medicine. And, you know, we can all diagnose this thing in very strange, you know, seemingly objective terms, but the only cure is our ability to love, forgive, and validate every single person in this world, no matter what they express. Because, like, what else is there? Well, I think that's a fantastic message. Um, to deliver at the end of our show, ladies and gentlemen, we've had the pleasure of talking to singer, songwriter, recording artist, musician, Mr. John Goodwin. It's been such a pleasure, and I would love to have you on again, and you have no idea how much enjoyment this was just for me, and I know that my listeners are going to love this as well. Well, I sure hope so, man. It's been a gift for you to have done this with me, and I, I hope everybody stays well and does well, and you know, we all meet again one day in a you know beautiful world where we can hang out together and see each other's faces, that kind of stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. John Goodwin, you have a wonderful day, sir. Take care. Thank you.